Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, I am joined by my colleagues, Brett Hornig and Leah Yingling, to recap the week that was in Chamonix, France for the UTMB series of events. We talk about some of our favorite performances and memorable moments, what the events will look like in years to come with all of the application changes, the impacts of this event on the overall 2022 mountain ultra trail running season, and much, much more. Before we get started though, this episode is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition. I've been a Gnarly user for over a year now for during and post run nutrition. If you want to give their products a try or you're already a fan and would like a discount for being a single track subscriber, use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout on their website for 20% off your next order. With that, let's get started. All right, welcome back to the Single Track Podcast. I am joined by my esteemed friends and colleagues, Brett Hornig and Leah Yingling, for a recap of not just the UTMB race, but also CCC. We'll delve into TDS and OCC a bit as well. Um, but before we get into all of the topics at hand, uh, what's up, everybody? How's it going? Brett, where are you right now, and why are you wearing a Hawaiian shirt? <laughs> well... <laughs> Spoiler alert, I'm not in Hawaii. Um, I'm actually down in San Diego. Um, yeah, well, family time, hanging out with some friends, going to a wedding. Um, also, the day that we're recording, September 1st, it's my dad's birthday today. So I just wanted to say happy birthday to my dad because I'm sure he'll be listening to this at some point. And Leah, what's up with you? I We were just in over in Chamonix together for a couple weeks. But uh, yeah, where are you at now and what's up with you? I'm back in Salt Lake City, sadly, after a lovely almost two weeks away. Um, yeah, jumped right back in with work this week. So felt the jet lag majorly until last night. And I'm hoping today I've turned a corner because I was miserable to be around. <laughs> right on. Well, I say we start with, and I think we'll, this will be a relatively free form episode because I think we decided to do this less than 24 hours ago. Um, but maybe we just start with like, the vibe of this race and the experience on the ground level. Um, Brett, I know that you weren't there this year, but hopefully next year, but at least for, for Leah and I, I think we should, we should go into it. Um, Leah, what was it like for you this year? Because you've been there multiple times now. What stood out to you? So the last time I was out in Chamonix was in 2019 in the pre COVID era. And there was a lot of hype then, but I would say 2022 was unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, Finn, you know the feeling too, but the energy between, I was staying in Cormier for the first half, but then once you entered Chamonix, it was almost too much energy at times, but it was palpable everywhere. So much hype. Um, and I'm wondering how much of this had to do um, with the new ownership of the race, the new direction they're trying to take it, but it was next level. It felt like some of our biggest road marathons on steroids, um, just wild. The energy was amazing. And I think it's, it was even attracting people entirely outside the realm of trail and ultra running, which is really cool to see. Mm. Yeah. One thing I'll say, uh, I learned a lot every time I travel and I had been over to Chamonix last year too, but this year it really sunk in how much of a pedestrian first city it is. Like it's just geared for walking around, biking around, running around public transportation, the buses, the trains, it's all pretty efficient. And to me, it's, it's such a radical departure from what we have over in the States where everything is car first and you need to go out of your way logistically to make a lot of things happen, especially as a trail runner. So 
that was a really cool experience. And uh, so I'll just say that. But but before we keep going, Brett, I think you probably had the closest experience to the live coverage feed and just being a spectator from afar. So what was that like for you? Yeah. I mean, I think this year I logged the most hours watching the live feed of any any other one. I mean, one huge kudos to Dylan Bowman for doing, I guess, the night portion where he he just sat in the basement of his house and talked to himself for like eight <laughs> hours because he had no co-host or anything. He was just going with the chat room and what was on the feed. And he had to just go off that and just talk out loud in a room by himself for eight hours. And he did an amazing job. Um, Doing the Lord's work. Yeah. So I was, I probably watched like, I don't know, 15 or 16 hours total. Um, I did go to sleep during what <laughs> ended up probably being the most exciting parts of the race, but I did wake up at like, you know, four thirty just in time to see Killian uh, run the last few miles into town. But I mean, it was amazing how, much live feed there was in the form of you know the runners being followed going back and forth between runners between aid stations back commentating on the gaps and how people looked what was going on in the aid stations you know i always think the most fascinating part is seeing what people are doing in the aid stations um just because there's so many different nationalities represented uh at the race and everyone does very different things, but, you know, they all end up kind of getting a similar outcome. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was definitely not without a few hiccups, but I mean, it was also free. I didn't have to pay to watch it. And that's incredible. Um, and I think that's something that's, you know, necessary for the growth of the sport. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was really cool. It was really fun to watch. One question that I have, and I'm not sure this group can answer it because it might be beyond our technical knowledge, but the live stream seemed to be just amazingly clear and fast and just great from a user experience standpoint. And I want to know what they're doing over in Chamonix and among the UTMB group to make that work, because obviously we're, we're starting to use that technology in the US. And I think Aeroviper running, for example, is making great strides with it, but, uh, be choppy in a lot of cases and um it's hard to follow the runners um so i'm just curious like wh what are they doing differently you know it's, and Brett or Lee, maybe yeah, you have some insight I, it's full 5g all the way around the mountain i mean even when you're in between towns uh, allegedly if you pulled your phone out and you know it got 5g you would have it the entire time and like the amount of bandwidth that they're able to just that they have to manage is huge um which the U.S. is the U.S. is massive. I mean, for them to get, you know, cell towers like five G towers all over our mountains would. I mean, it would also be a pretty, probably pretty big waste of money for the cell companies because not that many people actually live out there. I mean, it would benefit, you know, us running like Western states once a year. So I'm all for that. But you know, that might be like where like a satellite internet like Starlink might be in the future for the US, but so much of that is just because, you know, it seems like such a big race, but it's really actually in not that big of an area. And it's so established and people live there. And, you know, it's well traveled. So that that's just like, a, 
nice accessibility kind of feature that that you get over in Europe. Leah, did you see Des Linden's Instagram post? I did. What are your thoughts? Oh man, I think I think we can make a trail runner out of Des. I think she's gonna come to the dark side soon. I saw that she did a 25k trail run with Ruth Croft, which I think is impressive. She's already like diving into the deep end of mountain running. And uh, apparently she had attended the Brooks Trail Summit too before Mm -hmm. Chamonix. So like she had done two or three weeks fully invested in, in the trail scene. And it was enough obviously to make up, make a post that made a huge impact on her. But you know, the thing that I wonder about is like, how do you lure someone like Des, who is ultra famous, no pun intended, in her own sport? How do you lure someone like that away from what I have to assume are like six-figure appearance fees just to show up at like the Boston Marathon or New York Marathon in favor of, okay, I want to do Western States now or okay, I want to do the Moab Trail Marathon instead. Like until, I don't know, I don't, I don't know when that day is going to end for her, but um yeah, that's a know. that's a good question. I know it's like I want I feel like she has hit her peak of performance in the road marathoning world with the level of elites that we have today. Um, so in my heart, I feel like she will come to the trail world sooner rather than later, to be honest. And I think it's going to be something that like lies more with who she has, who she is as a person and more with her values um, and likely not getting drawn by appearance fees. That's my hope. Um, I think we'll see her sooner than we think. Yeah, I agree. Where do you think she could fit in in terms of like what, which, which distances does she invest in? I see her being like a, a good 50 miler. I don't know. I don't like, I, I think she's going to do great at 50 Ks, but I honestly don't see her as somebody who's going to stick to like the road 50 Ks or road 100 Ks. I really do see her as a trail runner. Um, right so on. I think we're going to see her in that trail 50 mile world um, pretty soon. I've been saying this for years with some of my friends. I always thought Des could win the Lake Sonoma 50 mile mm-hmm. when it was really competitive. I always thought that was kind of her style race. Like it's runnable. 100%. It's very hard, but it's still like you got, you, you do have to have some little bit of speed there. Even at, like mm-hmm. Lake Sonoma, I was like that, that style, like the North face 50 mile, like that would have been yeah. like the, her like intro to crush people on the trails. And she does have her trail background goes actually farther back than we might think uh, her she's from San Diego and my uncle in law puts on a high school running camp and she actually went to that camp in high school, which is out of Sequoia National Park. And she was crushing it on the trails, even in high school. Mm. So it's, it's there. Well, I think it's cool that uh, our sport is starting to transcend our community and get to be noticed more by uh yeah, just some of the most powerful, well-known runners in other disciplines. And I mean, I just saw Sidious Mag, which is sort of like the default media publication in the track and field world. They have been actually talking about UTMB a fair bit in the past two weeks. Kyle Merber dedicated a whole blog post to it in his lap count newsletter, shout out lap count. And obviously, you know, Des, what she's doing now, I think it's just super cool. Like it's super cool that this is sort of like become the beacon of, recruiting at least some people into our sport that are notable in other areas. So I don't know way to go Des. And we're we're stoked for whenever you do decide to make the jump. Um, anything else in terms of the vibes of the week that we should cover? How did, um, how did the travel 
around the course during the race end up being? Because we talked about that beforehand and that there was a lot of stuff swirling about how it might be a nightmare. And you guys got to experience it firsthand. How did it go? Yeah, it, um, from my perspective, it wasn't as bad as anticipated. However, I say that with the caveat that the two runners I was crewing were both elite athletes and we got special parking passes of sorts, um, being that they were in the elite group. Um, However, there were some unforeseen challenges along the way with crewing um, that were not communicated very well. So like we went to go up to the Champagne Lock aid station from the one side and we were turned away and said, said like, you had to turn around, like go park, you had to take a shuttle. In one instance, we were told we had to go back around like the entire other side. So it added probably a good 30 minutes to our mm. drive back. So we had to almost like circumnavigate and approach Champagne Lock from another direction. Wow. Um, so that was, those were some little challenges that I don't think were communicated elsewhere. And I don't really know if too many people experienced that too. Mm. Um, but I will say, I felt like things weren't as bad as I anticipated. Um, and I think a lot of the shuttling system um, worked out well. I'm not sure how the lines and things like that worked. Um, and if it was first come first serve, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but Finn, I don't know if you have any experience with your crewing situations. Well, I would echo everything you say. And I think that one of the most rewarding parts of the week for me was, uh, to get to see someone like Leah who ha- has a PhD in crewing and <laughs> knowledge of the logistics of our sport dialed, like watching her in action, like, cause Leah, you know, we helped, I helped you crew Jimmy's race and, uh, that was an awesome experience. But I do think a big takeaway for me was uh, ultra running, especially at this type of event, truly becomes a team sport. It's, I mean, I know that we talk about that a lot, but you need, I think, a crew of like three to four people or at least two distinct groups providing support, not just for the runner, but for each other through the race. Um, there's just so many hurdles. The race is at least 24 hours long for most runners. Um, there needs to be like a crew for a crew and there needs Mm -hmm. to be so many uh, backup plans for not just if things go wrong, but when things go wrong. So um, that was, that, that left a huge mark on me. And I now believe more than ever that, especially like at the elite end of the sport where like, at least nowadays, like even seconds matter in hundreds uh, races can be won and lost at aid stations and in aggregate over all of those stops. So, um, yeah. yeah, that for me was the big one. 100%. And I think like there was just little challenges throughout the day. And we, our crew for uh, Jimmy Elam, Finn was on that as well. And we had a WhatsApp thread going throughout the day. And Finn was at some of the aid stations. I was at other aid stations. Um, some of these aid stations are an hour, 20 minutes away. So like there is significant driving. If you don't have a car, you're relying on the shuttles. There's a lot of unknowns. Um, so I think it requires a good amount of privilege. Like you need a car, you need friends who are out in Europe willing to crew you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like maybe the back of the pack doesn't have like a crew like we had out there with multiple people being willing and able and not racing to be able to crew a single person. Um, I, I don't know if you guys have seen uh, Germain Grandier's uh, post yet about having a crew. Oh, yeah. So that's Katie Scheid's partner. Mm-hmm. And he ended up having to DNF UTMB um, because he had COVID, but he had a great post. I think that he had out today and it was talking about, crews in general and almost how he would like to see a world and a race um, without crews to some degree to not only even the playing field, but to lessen the environmental impact of mm-hmm. um, crews on races. Um, and I thought it's a re- there was a lot of really great discussion on it um, coming from people who said, yeah, but crews, like 
I love that part. Like I love that cultural part. Um, I love supporting a runner, but then other people who are 100% on board with the argument saying like, yeah, let's even the playing field, like crews are a significant advantage. And I can't say I disagree with that because it's very true. Totally. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. Question. How competitive could one be at UTMB without a crew? Like let's take, well, let's just take like, let's say Killian Jornet, for example, if he runs UTM, can he win this race without crew or is the amount of time lost at, you know, the very front of the race, uh, make it so he doesn't win? I mean, I think Killian showed us last weekend that he will win no matter what. Yeah. Maybe he's um, a bad example. So <laughs> my argument is yes. Killian, yeah, Killian, can win. Killian will still win. How much yeah. time gets lost? That's a good question because what I do think it's interesting, and this is something that Germain brought up in his post is it almost pulls on this entirely different skill set of the athlete. Like it pulls on them to troubleshoot more, mm-hmm. uh, to rely on other people, to rely on other foods, to maybe they have to carry all their nutrition on them. Um, and that's heavy. That's an additional like three to five pounds, probably if you're carrying 50 K to 50 miles worth of gels, if you require something specific. So it's this other version of reliance, but yeah, I do think some of the top athletes at Killian would do perfectly fine without a crew. Um, but I think like these, like the top 10, like three to 10 or like, I think that those positions would definitely, um, yeah, might be determined one way or another with, if they had crew or not. Yeah. I would echo Leah. And I would just say, I think it, comes down to how well your gear performs mm-hmm. and uh if there's anything you need on a on a consistent or intermittent basis that you're not default carrying um i was shocked and lee i think you saw jimmy for example at more aid stations than i did but when i saw him um he didn't even touch the aid station supply because at least at the one like at Cormaya, for example mm-hmm. I wasn't allowed to go and grab him like pickles or coffee or, or any food. Like he would have had to have walked over to the table and grabbed that stuff. So because of that, like extra step, he just ignored it. And Mm -hmm. we went with what he had in his pack. But, um, that was also interesting to me that like he, he wasn't even at the ones that I was there at relying on, um, what the race provided. It was just, he was just going off his bags. So. Right. Right. And I think this is just, uh, anecdotal uh, story is he relied on, he wanted something salty at an aid station. So grabbed prosciutto and then uh, in the next 30 minutes, prosciutto made him sick and he threw it up. So I think like we'd see a lot more of that, like having to troubleshoot on the go when you eat some nutrition that you're not entirely used to in the middle of the race and then you're vomiting. Okay. What do you do next? You've got to wait that out. Um, something else I wanted to add Finn, when you were talking about um, getting things in the aid station, you're only allowed one crew member in the aid stations. And this is like a big tent. Um, so I think a big difference we see at UTMB compared to something like Western States is it's a lot less of a pit crew um, and more so just like the runner helping themselves and you're helping the runner and a lot more of just like that one-on-one. Whereas a Western States, you can sit in a chair and you've got five people working on a variety of things on you. Um, so that one crew person also needs to be really dialed. And I think the runner also needs to know themselves pretty well as well to yeah control those controllables. Mm-hmm. All right. I have an idea for, for you and Brett that I want to throw out there. And Brett, sorry to interrupt, but this just came to mind. I think that as crews become more recognized and prevalent and they play a decisive factor in our sport, uh, media outlets like Single Track and Free Trail and I Run Far, we should be previewing not just the runners, but the crews involved with their runners 
who's on the crew, what experience they have, what they bring to the table. Is the coach going to be there? Is one of the crew members, someone that's raced this race X number of times? Like, I think all of this stuff is going to become so critical. And I think that fans will probably want to consume it. Like it's fun to think about. Yeah. I, I stand by the fact that like a lot of the performance improvements we've seen over the years is not only due to people getting faster and whatnot and runners having better nutrition, but crewing, crewing in general has improved so much. Um, Crews are learning from crews. You're seeing videos of crews in action on social media and people are picking up uh, bits and pieces of what this crew is doing for this runner. And they're implementing that in their race plan. So I think so much can be learned just even like observing at a race like this. And I think one of you guys mentioned like seeing how runners from different nationalities and backgrounds, how they do aid stations. Um, so yeah, I think so much can just be gained in that yeah, observing and crewing. Yeah. That, I mean, that like, there's just so many thoughts in my head right now about like, like at one point, at what point in our sport, and I guess maybe it'll depend, like come down from race to race. will they like really have to put a hard cap on like crew size and you know, how many people can go up to, I mean, like the, the biggest cluster is always uh, Robinson flat at Western mm-hmm. States at the first 50 K. Like if you're not like, you know, you, your crew, I mean, your, your crew probably got there like three hours before you got there just so that way they didn't right. have to deal with the stress of the lines of cars, uh, which mm-hmm. when you're, when you're leaving, out of it you know if you're running towards the front and you leave you see their line of cars is already like two miles long as you're heading out and like at what point does that just get way too chaotic and they have to you know i've always thought like you know like a little parking pass sort of mm-hmm. placard uh across some of these spots might not be a bad idea but like yeah like what's the sweet spot for crew members like you don't want like 35 people or maybe you do i don't know <laughs> No, I think there's, yeah, there's definitely a point of, yeah, way too many people on a crew. I think like four to five is the sweet spot. Yeah. For this next question uh, that I want to throw out to the group, uh, it applies not just to UTMB, but to all the other UTMB World Series majors, so CCC, OCC, et cetera. Um, What performances over the week stood out the most to you? And that could just be from, uh, you know, the, the people that we've been talking about forever or any shockers or any disappointments. So I don't know, Brett, you want to leave with this? Yeah. I'm trying to think I'm like, like what? Cause now that I know what happened, I like, I feel like I like, I'm trying to think of before the race started, like what would have shocked me the most? Like, you know, like Killian winning did not shock me because I picked him to win. Um, but like, I, like none of us really said like Katie Scheid was a contender to win the race this year. So that was very shocking. 20 minutes into the race though, just like watching her run at the start, I was like, Oh, it's not shocking anymore. She really looks like she's just going to win this whole thing, like from the gun. Um, so, you know, it was really shocking. And then 20 minutes later, it was much less shocking. And then it just became a very impressive performance. But, um, yeah, I mean, even overall, like, uh, yeah, Katie winning and like the North American ladies at UTMB mm-hmm. kind of balled out. Uh, mm-hmm. That was that was shocking. You know, I think another shocking thing was like it seemed like there was a lot more there was a, more carnage on the ladies' side than in years past. What do you guys think? 
Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think I would term it carnage necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think we had a lot of DNFs for injury during the race, um, which I don't often associate necessarily with carnage. But yeah, a combo of injury and carnage that I wasn't anticipating mm-hmm. um, because I firmly believe that like women tend to not falter as much as men in races. Um, but I think this year, I, I mean, my you are very lucky I didn't play uh, Fantasy Free Trail this time around, Brett. Um, but, but actually, my Fantasy Free Trail would not have done too well this race. I think I had three of my top five on both the men's and women's side, DNF. Um, so I would not have performed well, so I'm happy I did not play for that reason. Um, but I think that just goes to show, like, you just can't count yourself out at UTMB. Um, there's just so much that can happen. And uh, yeah, I think like you mentioned, the women's side, we saw a little bit more of the favorites DNFing this year uh, than normal. One thing I want to mention before we, before I'll give you some of mine as well, this doesn't have as much to do with performances in race, but um, having been there in 2021 and then being there again in 2022, 2021 from like a COVID standpoint was weirdly safer because there was all these precautions in place. Like everyone was masked up. They were probably like freshly vaccinated. There was so much carnage due to COVID before this race. So many losses Mm -hmm. before even getting to the start line. Like it wasn't like overuse injuries or stuff like that. It was just like, oh shit. Like I just Mm -hmm. got COVID too. Like losing Sabrina Stanley and Avery Collins, like 24 hours before the race, such a gut punch to fans, but also to like, those two racers, I think Tim Tollefson like mm-hmm. realized he had it like two seconds into the race. Like, and those are just three, but that was a bummer to me because like, I don't know. I felt like that, uh, there were a lot, a lot of interesting storylines never got to run the races just simply because of, uh, you know, losing themselves to that environment. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I actually think UTMB in general, not the race itself, but the weeks leading up to it with all these teams coming together, staying in their houses together. I think those turned into like little super spreader events within themselves. Um, and I think some of those athletes who are out there for a few weeks leading up to it kind of suffered from those effects. Um, but I also think there were some people who got it, had COVID some, at some portion in their training. Um, so somebody like Tyler Green, for example, he not only had the challenge of doing the Western States UTMB double, but in between all that training, he got COVID and ended up not having um, a great day for him. But that presents challenges in itself. And I know he's not somebody that makes excuses for himself, but I could see how mm-hmm. that would definitely put a damper on a big day like UTMB. All right. I'm going to rattle off my list quickly. The first for me was Danny Marino at OCC. Not yeah. only the first American to ever podium at that race, but I believe this was the longest race she's ever run in terms of distance or time. So to be able to do that, in your debut at like a mountain 50 K is incredible. And uh, I was actually just reading a, I think it was an outside mag article on her. And I think she just has plans to kind of keep rising up in distance, not like immediately, but over time, which is exciting. Um, Caitlin Gerben at UTMB for a couple reasons. I think we talked about her in the preview episode and she had been coming back from an injury, had a performance at TGC that wasn't up to par with what she's done in the past, but she, she got on the podium here and, she also did it like not that far after doing this absolutely epic high cascades route that was like 60 hours time on feet. And then my last one is this trio of Jimmy Elam, Jeff Mogavero, and Rod Farvard. I think they all ran under 24 hours or close to it. And in most years, that would have had them either well within the top 10 or flirting with it. And 
I think Rod might have been like 23rd and Mo Guevara was like 18th mm-hmm. and Jimmy was 14th. But like, I think they, they came and raced smart. And um, for a lot of them, it was their first time at UTMB. So excited to see what they can do in, in future years as well. Yeah, I um, I 100% agree with those. And a fun Rod fact was he was in this group of like David Laney, Tyler Green, Seth Swanson at Triant, which is like not you still have two big climbs to the finish, but he was right around like 48th place when I saw him there. And I had been crewing and spectating at that aid station. And I saw him come in and I said, Rod, there's 25 people in the 30 minutes ahead of you. Like you can go get top 25. And not only did he get top 25 and scoop up 25 people ahead of him, he scooped up like 28 and got 22nd place, which was just so incredible to see. Um, And just, evidence of what can happen in those last two climbs of UTMB, like just completely wow. you can scoop so many people up. Yeah. That's a, well, what that's a, run. a great story. I love it. I that. didn't know that. It was amazing. <laughs> that's cool. Mm-hmm. It was so cool. Um, yeah. Can I share mine, Finn? Yes. Yeah, please do. Please so, do. So um, mine OCC was definitely Danny Moreno as well. Um, I always thought of her as like a pretty aggressive racer, but what we saw at OCC was her sitting back a little bit more and letting people go off the front. And I think, I read in her report, she was in the first like nine miles or so. She might've been like 20th place and then just slowly worked her way up and then got to work right before the last climb, putting herself in fourth place at the top of the climb and then running her way into almost a near second place. She was only 60 seconds or so back on second place. Mm. Um, But man, she can just hammer. And I think being able to finish that strongly um, just goes to show that she's going to be so volatile just terrifying at the longer distances like she's going to hammer and i think she'll do really well the more she gets into the longer stuff if she's able to finish that strong one comment there and maybe brett you can provide perspective on this because you're probably the most tuned into the track and field world i feel like danny is a great example in our sport of an athlete who is sort of following the seasons perfectly in terms of progression like she's like at this point in my career i'm just I am well suited to just focus on 50 Ks and like maybe later in my career, I'll, I'll look at hundred Ks and hundred miles. Whereas I feel like most people in our sport, even in their early twenties and mid twenties, we just like catch the hundred mile bug and like start doing that stuff. But she's really like ascending in a very logical way in the same way that like road runners will graduate from like the five K to the 10 K only when they feel like they've gotten the most out of themselves at that previous distance. Yeah. I mean, she's definitely taking a very, like kind of calculated approach to her trail and ultra running career, which um, is, I mean, it's cool. She's, she's doing a great job. I'm not saying that that's something everyone needs to do. Also, once you move up in distance, it seems like there's always this like stigma or this invisible rule that once you've gone up to a 50 mile, you're never allowed to go race a 50 K again, unless it's just a rust buster. Like it can, you can have shorter races still be your a race. And, I mean, I think it was like last, maybe last spring, she was on the track doing some track races. Mm -hmm. Like, like just, yeah, it seems like she's doing a good job kind of staying well-rounded and like not just being like, okay, I ran this distance once. Now I'm moving up to the next one. It's like, you're allowed to Mm -hmm. race the same distance multiple times, you know, Mm -hmm. before deciding to move up. You don't have to move up ever actually. Um, you know, it it just seems like there's, there's like a stigma that your value as a runner is determined by if you've moved up to a hundred miles or not, which I think is stupid because I'm not good at it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think, yeah, I think we see a similar uh, mentality with like Grayson Murphy. Uh, she hasn't really moved up in distance yet. And people are always asking her when her neck, when her first marathon is going to be, et cetera, et cetera. And she's like, Hey, I'm, yeah, <laughs> but she's staying where she's at and she's really good at what she's doing right now, which is cool to see. I like when runners kind of stay true to what their strengths are in that moment in time. And I think something cool about Danny too, I think in her buildup for OCC, um, she was still racing on the roads, racing on the track. I think she threw down like a 16 and change 5k, yeah. um, maybe about a month ago. So that's amazing to see that. Yes. Speed is strength um, in these races like this, and like you still have to be fast. And uh, what's the rest of your list, Lee? I, I apologize for oh, interrupting yeah. you. No, that's okay. That was a good tangent. Um, I thought in CCC, Sinmaya Buddha from New- Nepal, second place finisher, honestly came out of nowhere. I had no idea who she was. And when you research her results, she hasn't done a ton. There's like one. Um, and I think one of, yeah. And like she has some results that go back to 2019 when the world. Uh, mountain running championships where I think she was 39th or 38th or something. Um, so this result really caught me off guard and she was so strong all day. She was closing in on Blandine and it was amazing to see. Like she was probably 10 to 15 minutes back at Champaign-Lac. And I think by um, Valor scene, she had cut that down to about five minutes. And I think if the race was longer, she definitely would have won and just was looking so solid every single time I saw her. So that was that she blew it out of the water and it was incredible. Um, my other biggest surprise was Zach Miller in UTMB. Um, he just races so aggressively. And I, I think I was telling my husband, Mike, that he almost seems to race what I think, but I don't know how his training is, but like outside his fitness level at times. And you're just waiting to see what happens. And in his last couple editions of UTMB, when he's DNF'd and then had a rough day. He's gone out aggressively as he does with the lead pack and then really falls back and falters. This year, I mean, he looked like he was hurting really badly in the race, but he held on more than I ever would have expected him to. And he even had to have a sprint finish where I think he ended up having to outlast uh, the sixth place finisher and beat them by about 25 seconds or so. Um, So, it's great to have Zach Miller back. I love how he races, even though it's not an approach I would take myself, but it's really fun to follow. Couldn't agree more. You know, I got I got to add in one more. Um, Leah, another one of our, our mutual friends, friend of the podcast, Caleb Olson, mm-hmm. who was the top American finisher at CCC this year. I'll go on a little bit of a tangent here. Last year, he finished 17th right in that pack with like Chris Brown and uh, I think Avery Collins. Yeah. yeah. And I think he ran 11.54, which for context, if he had run a, that same race in 2015 when Zach Miller won, I think, in 11.54, he would have been right there. So that just shows you how far the, the race has improved that in six years, uh, you know, you can run under, under 12 hours and be well out of contention. But um, he's just somebody that I think is one of the smartest and best racers at this distance. Um he came in this year, ran 11.15, got 13th overall, top American. I think he passed Stephen Kirsch, who is a household name if you're an ultra running fan in America, uh, on that descent from La Flegere. And Lee, I think he told you the same story. Like he disguised himself as a European throughout the race so that uh, he could slowly move up. And like, I don't even think Stephen knew that a fellow American was passing him in those last few miles, but he did. And yeah, he, he put 38 minutes on his time from last year, again, top American. And, uh, 
I've been telling him every year, like you have the fitness to do whatever you want. You just have to, your mind has to give your body the permission to keep making these huge strides. And I really want him to come back next year because I, I think he could uh, crack into that top 10. And totally. I just want to give him a shout out because he's become that part, you know, along with like Leah and Jimmy, sort of the pride of the Wasatch in these international competitions. So go Caleb. Yeah, it was cool to see. I think he's, an, he's evidence of what can happen in the late stages of a long race too. I think I saw him at Valor scene and he was 21st or 22nd and ended up, you know, with one major climb left to go, working his way up to 13th. Um, so yeah, the race isn't over till it's over. And I think Caleb is definitely evidence of that. Should we... I guess, I guess kind of an easy transition because we were talking about kind of the depth of the race, like maybe a couple like depth stats for UTMB yeah, or yeah. CCC as well. Um, yeah, I, I was talking to David Laney after the race and he sent me his splits from 2015, which was the year he got third um, and his splits from this year. And the one that stood out that just blew my mind was in 2015, he got he exited the Cormier aid station in 10 hours and four minutes in 16th place. This year, he exited the Cormier aid station in 10 hours and 16 minutes. So it was 12 minutes slower. So like a little bit, but not that much in 64th place is 16th place versus 64th place. Uh, and that's what is that? Seven years difference. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like there's just there's so many good runners at this race now. All right. I have a couple to share for the men's field. If you had run anywhere between roughly 2310 and 2330 between 2018 and 2021, that would have put you in the top 10, like firmly in the top 10 of the men's field this year, running low 22s put you in the top 10. So like all these people like Jeff Mogavero, Jimmy, again, they would have been firmly in the top 10, which it just blows my mind that we've made that big an evolutionary step among the top, you know, the competitive runners in the sport. That blows my mind. And I think I mentioned Zach Miller won CCC in 2015 and 1153. There's that famous Billy Yang documentary. That same time would have gotten him 31st place Ooh. in 2022, just seven years later. <laughs> oh That's amazing. Gosh. And it would have gotten him 17th place last year. So... Okay. Um, and th- those two were interesting to me. Um, wow. Yeah, man. On um, my interesting depth stat is in the women's CCC race, um, which was just bonkers on like the American women's side. I think we had eight women, eight American women in the top 25 and 10 North American women in the top 25, which is just incredible. Um, but it goes deeper than that. So last year, Abby Hall got second place. Um, this year, we would have had, I think it was 10 or 11 women under her second place time. Um, and then, so we had American women all the way through top 25. Our 25th woman was Corinne Shalvoy running 1428. Uh, last year, that time would have got her 10th place. So last year, these top 25 women would have been in the top 10, which is just incredible. And it not only speaks to the depth of the international field, but I think the fact that we see so many American women here. Um, it also speaks to the depth of the American women distance running right now. Yeah. Well, I, Leah, I have a question for you there, actually. I'm, and I'm just thinking about this in real time. But given that drastic improvement in uh, top 10 times, if you're an American woman heading into this race, in order to, um, or 
I should backtrack. If you're going to run a quote unquote smart race, you're probably putting those 14 plus hour splits in your mind. So does that indicate, given that the times were in the low 13s, 12s, 11s this year, does that mean that everybody that was in the top 10 this year was likely in their minds gunning for a win uh, from the start? I think so. I have a good friend who finished in this top 25 and I know that their splits going into this race were 12 hours. And I was like, you know, that would win this race in most years. And they were like, yeah, I, I know that. Um, so I think that's what they knew that like was going to happen. Like you needed to run 12 hours this year to win the race. And turns out actually you needed to run sub 12 hours to win this race. Um, and I think like even like, yeah, 13 hours would have been 10th place this year. So I think if I were running this race, I would have went into it with 13 hours as my goal splits. And yeah, it goes to show that you could still be running a smart race and you could be way out of the top 10. So I guess to go along with, you know, the depth of the race, all the races and, you know, how much faster, you know, the top fives and the top tens got, how much of that this year did the weather contribute to that? Because, you know, we did Mm -hmm. speak in the preview episode about a lot of what ifs for this weather and how crappy it might be. But it seemed by looking at, you know, watching a lot of the live streams and, you know, you guys being out there, it seemed like the weather ended up pretty solid. Like I saw people coming into Cormier and then like taking off layers and leaving Cormier. Yeah. I, I think I would say the UTMB weather was spectacular. I don't think they could have had better weather. It was a little warm. It was actually got quite warm. Um, for the, like the elite men in the last two climbs of the day, but n- no precipitation really, if anything, like a misting, I think CCC had a little bit more challenging conditions. It did rain and it came down quite hard for a few hours, at least four or five hours um, early on in their race. So I think that also shows that these times for CCC, yeah. especially are quite impressive given the fact that like they still had conditions to deal with. Mm. Well, it makes me think, given that the rate of change at all these races is so crazy significant now, is there such a thing like from a coaching standpoint, from a media standpoint, is there, is there such a thing as a typical UTMB win or a typical CCC win or like a playbook for how to race these races? Um, cause everything to me is like, is, is blown up from here on out. Like, I don't know at some point the rate of change has to slow down and expectations are tempered and, but maybe not. Maybe we're talking about like a mid nines win for the men at CCC, or we're talking about like a sub 21 hour win for, uh, you know, the female winner at UTMB. Like I I have no idea what to expect anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the field is pushing each other to depths that they didn't know they could go to. Um, I think Abby Hall, she had a post today that was chatting a little bit about like, what could I do differently next time? Like she improved on her time by 50, I think it's 53 minutes from last year. And that's huge. And she did it in probably 20 some minutes in the first half, 20 some minutes in the second half. And somebody asked her what she would do different this year. She said, tactically, I would have left this aid station with Sanmaya um, and made more of a race out of it. And that probably would have strung her along a little bit more. And she might've been able to keep with it if she went. So I think that's what we're going to see more of. And that's where we're going to see these times keep improving is whenever we have people challenging each other and going along for the ride and seeing if you can hang. And I think that's where you'll probably see us reaching more of our limits and races. Yeah. Like there's going to, we're going to hit a point where you can't just 
decide I'm going to run this time and it's going to win because there's going to be 15 people that will be able to run this time. And you're tactically going to have to figure out where on the course is your spot to make a move to win the race, which, you know, I mean, I guess in a way that's what, that was what Jim Walmsley tried this year. I mean, he definitely had like a spot coming off the Grand Cole Frey. Like this is my spot where I'm going to put time on Killian and the rest of the field and hope that that allows me to make it to the finish line first. Like, you know, and, and I don't like looking at his race. Like, I'm not sure if I would even tell him to do anything differently next time. I feel like he just didn't quite have it in the legs on this day, but like tactically I'm not, I'm not trying to let Killian be next to me with one more descent. Like, Mm-mm. you know, you, but at the same time, he's also a hard person to drop. But I think when you, you know, in Jim's case, like, I think he did just about everything right, um, which is just kind of, it's just so interesting how how many tactics, you know, there's just going to be, there's going to be so many different playbooks for yeah. this race. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I think something I've thought a lot about, and I think I've chatted with you guys about this in the past, is like, I think to get five to 10th, fifth to 10th in these races, you can run a smart race to get there. But I think you need to run a tactically more aggressive race if you want to land yourself in that top five or on the podium. Like you're going to have have to take some risks. And I think, yeah, we saw that play out pretty well at UTMB and especially at CCC as well. Yeah, there's actually, and this reminds me, and I think we were talking about this offline, there's an article by Mallory Richard at I Run Far, which confirms what you just said. It's almost never the case that if you lose touch with the front of the pack and you're aiming for the podium, that you get one of those podium spots, let alone win the race. And I think that that's interesting because it validates the strategies of like what we saw Katie Scheid do where Mm -hmm. people saw her lead right from the gun. And I know that there was some back and forth with Marianne middle of the race, but she led from the gun and people are like, what's she doing? Um, But it does validate her strategy. It validates what Pau Capel has done in the past and what Walmsley has tried to do for many years. Like at least for that podium spot, you kind of got to play that game in most years. Whereas, yeah, if, if you're if you're gunning for that like a top ten position, um, it's okay to be at like the twenty fifth or the thirtieth spot at Cormier and, mm-hmm. and still get there some way somehow. So I thought that was interesting. Um, okay, one thing I wanted to bring up, I want I don't want to forget this. This was the last year of a legacy system where you could get in through ITRA scores and all sorts of unique uh, events, but from here on out, it's the UTMB Stone system that's going to uh, pay your way in. So I'm, I'm curious, based on the changes that we're about to see, was this the most competitive UTMB that we will have ever seen in the event's history? Or is this whole setting going to become like what Kona is for Ironman, where all of the most competitive runners in our sport just sort of have this tacit agreement that, um, yeah, we're all just going to align around this series and like, we're going to return to UTMB some way, somehow for years to come. They got to, they got to let people into this race. I mean, I think, I think what like the qualification process for next year and you know, the years, I don't think that's the final version of it. I think something changes. Cause well, one thing I was wondering was like, does anyone from UTMB get invited back to race it next year? Like the top 10 do at Western States? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Um, because it's, so I think it works with like the UTMB world majors. So 
was World Majors, World Series. I think top 10 from UTMB would get invited back, is my belief. Okay. Um, from then a World a Series race, I know, right? World Series race would then be top three. Um, okay. So, but like Western States, for example, it would only be the top three from Western States that can get in to UTMB next year. I wouldn't be the top 10 there. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, it'll be I, interesting yeah. to see what yeah, I next think, year's like. I know. I think this will be the most competitive UTMB, CCC, OCC uh, for the next, like that we saw this year will be the most competitive maybe for the next couple of years, unless, like Brad said, they adapt the current system that they're implementing a little bit because it's going to be tough. Like you have to race, you know, one of these UTMB races and get top three, which I don't think getting top three or top 10 at one of these races. Yes. It's kind of difficult if you're an elite to get into, but it's more just like the logistics of it all. I think that's where the challenge is. Whereas this past system was quite nice, but maybe it'll impact the number of DNFs we see in the future. Maybe we'll see more people getting it done because they don't have an automatic elite entry the next year. Right. One thing I'm curious about, um, at least for the next couple of years, while there's still a ton of hoops to jump through and uh, it's just harder to get into the race generally, do you think that other races will sort of pick up the banner as this rallying race for just like great competition? Like does Western States get more competitive or does Lake Sonoma get competitive again? Like are there going to be alternatives that you see a lot of elites agreeing to go to and race at? I think so. I think, well, what if we might see run rabbit run get competitive again? I mean, it is competitive, but it's not as competitive as it could be for the cash prize that's on the table there. Um, So I bet you we see, people kind of going that direction if they have difficulty getting into UTMB. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, UTMB might be shooting themselves in the foot for a couple of years and lose some superpower at the front end of the fields because of this new qualification process. Like, yeah, it might reduce the number of DNFs on the elite side of things, but it might not make for, you know, these, our preview episode might only be 15 minutes long next year. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds easy. <laughs> but maybe we're filling that airtime with Run Rabbit Run coverage. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, oh, so right I guess that kind of leads into, so UTMB this year was the first golden ticket race for mm-hmm. next year's Western States. Yes. Yes. Who do, who do we want to see take some golden tickets? Like, do oh, we want it to Katie roll down shy. anywhere? Like, I want to see, yeah, I want to see Katie run Western States. I mean. Yeah. And like, will Caitlin Gerben go back to Western States? My feelings are she probably won't because she's had some pretty successful, great days at Western States and she probably wants to leave it at that. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think Katie Scheid would take it, honestly, because I think winning UTMB is like a nice little crown right now. But I think I'd love to see her skill set applied to Western States. Yeah. And it, it seems like she's one of the few where this is her best chance of getting into Western States racing mm-hmm. UTMB, not any of the other golden totally. ticket races. Um, Finn, what do you got? I got, I'm, I'm on the, I'm on one second. I gotta, I gotta get to the edge of my seat here to say this. You gotta get a standing desk. <laughs> so, Finn. One of, so, I gotta get a standing <laughs> desk. All right. so as we all know, um, if, if people decline the, the golden ticket opportunity, it rolls down as far as fifth place. Yep. And guess who got fifth place in the men's race Zach this year? Miller. Zach Miller. Zach Miller. <laughs> wow. 
So this Zach Miller could be lining up for Western States next year. Um, because I don't know, like, do you see, do I see Tom Evans taking another shot at Western? Like he just mm-hmm. ran a phenomenal race there a couple of years back. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure Killian is done with the race. Um, I don't know if Matthew Blanchard is like, I could see him well, taking it honestly. So? Yeah, yeah. I, I could, could see, see him that. Taking it. I think he's good friends with Marianne mm-hmm. and I think okay. Marianne's going back next year and that'd be like a very fun duo to see go at it. But, um, who was, but Walmsley's not, Jim. Walmsley's, Walmsley's not. not going to Killian's not. Yeah, yeah, Matthew probably I would see him taking a golden ticket because he's never run Western. Killian has won it. Mm-hmm. Tom, I guess Evans, he's never won Western States. Like perhaps that could be lingering in the back of his mind. Or maybe he now wants to win UTMB mm-hmm. because of how well it went this year. Yeah, and then and then Zach. Or are we going to see a scenario where only one or zero golden tickets gets mm-hmm. used. Yeah. What a disaster. Which happened last year. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. Which happened last year. Hmm. Hmm. This is fun. Yeah, and I think on the women's side, I don't think... So Marianne's already into Western States. Yeah. Maybe Katie Shy takes it. Caitlin Gerben, let's say she doesn't. I think it rolls down to Jocelyn, Polly, and mm-hmm. fourth then. Yep. Um, yeah, and I don't think she's from Western States. So that's... I, I foresee that happening. It would be a Katie Shy, Jocelyn, ticket And then take. who was fifth? Oh, uh, uh, Esther, I can't pronounce it. Esther Siliag. Yeah. Siliag. Yeah. I couldn't make huh. a educated guess on whether she And they have take two it. weeks. Hmm. Well, and so I think we're, they have two weeks mm-hmm. and we're, we're about a week down. So we'll know in the next week oh, who's taking cool. what. Um, wow. But it is in, another thing it brings up is like if we have another year where all these people from UTMB decline it it kind of defeats the point of UTMB being this golden ticket race. And I think the same thing happened at Le Templier last year too, where mm-hmm. um, I, I, at one of the races, it was all the women declined it. And at one of the races, it was all the men declined it in that race. And it's just a huge lost opportunity for tickets. And I don't think that they got reallocated uh, to other races. So yeah, I don't know. maybe I'd like to see races in this mix where they actually like use the tickets. Yeah. That's actually a good point. Like maybe if they don't get used in these earlier races, they could, get pushed to later golden ticket races. Like is, is there a downside to that scenario? I don't think necessarily, um, especially like some of these golden ticket races, especially the end of the season ones get really, really competitive. I can see like Bandera in January doesn't, it's usually like not the most competitive golden ticket race. So giving Mm. more tickets to that race would lend itself to like less depth, I would say. But if you gave Mm. it to something like Canyons, I think, that would be favorable. Yeah. Mm. Oh, or Finn's uh, last chance qualifier 50K. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we don't know yet how many golden tickets that LCQ is going to have because <laughs> as as it stands, there are zero, but any unclaimed ones through the golden ticket races get thrown into this mystery 50K. I like it. Oh my gosh. LCQ. Ooh, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> the mystery okay. LCQ. Uh, Couple more, couple more questions here before we wind down to the top of the hour. Um, I think, Brett, you brought this up pre-interview here. Uh, what will the people who DNF this race uh, choose as their next races? Like, who are some notable DNFs that you are looking forward to seeing the next steps for? Well, first off, Leah gets credit for that Thanks. question. <laughs> sorry. Oh my gosh. So Leah, I'm going to pass Leah, this I'm so on. I'm going <laughs> to. Pass this on to her. 
I am a terrible facilitator. <laughs> That's okay. I was like, oh, Brett's so lucky he's getting this credit right now. <laughs> no, Leah, 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 let's hear who you're excited to see. I guess race uh, next. Cool. Right. Yeah. So we saw very recently Avery Collins announced that he was in for Run Rabbit Run. Um, and I've kept my eye on that entrance list to see if we also saw Sabrina Stanley sign up for that, which I have not yet. So I'm assuming she's either waiting to make a decision or she won't do that. Something I think could happen with Sabrina would be her um, running one of the UTMB, the by UTMB races this fall. I know there's Mexico. I know there's um, oh, Thailand. Thailand. Yeah, one of those two is what I foresee. So she can absolutely guarantee her spot in next year's UTMB. Um, those were my two main, like, D- oh, Tim Tolleson. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious to see where he puts his fitness to. Cause I think he ended up with, uh, 20 miles or so. I think it was 30 K he dropped out at, um, with COVID at UTMB. So I know a few years back he, uh, raced Havelina and raced it pretty well. So we see Tim give Havelina another go and try to work his way into Western States that way, because I do believe he needs, an, if he wants to do Western States again, he would need a golden ticket. Yeah, that's mm. true. I think, I think Tim should just. <clears throat> Tim needs to go on vacation, like he's, <laughs> like I like he's had a, a couple rough goes and a lot of great training. But like, I think Tim should, you know, put his efforts right now towards the race that he's putting on in Mammoth in October. Mm-hmm. He will be fit. I don't think he needs to take the next like golden ticket like stab at the next race like when he wants it he could take it but Mm -hmm. i think i think the 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 like what it boils down to is like truly actually wanting that next thing because you know any of these big races it's such a they're a big commitment you know Mm um it's like yeah like i was training for the pine to palm 100 in 2017 and it got canceled due to fires and i didn't hop into another race because Pine Palm was the race that I had like my heart set on. Like that was the course I wanted to do. Um, so then it was just like, well, it was a good hundred mile training block. I didn't race a hundred miler. So I guess my legs are a little bit better off for the next one. But, mm-hmm. you know, I see that as a perfectly viable option as well. But with that being said, I would love to see just all these people hop into run rabbit. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to preface mine with, with a, with a comment slash question. One thing that we don't have in our sport that is very common in like soccer and basketball and baseball is when an athlete gets towards the end of their career and they retire, there's like this very clear, like there's a press conference. People say like, I've had a great ride. I'm done. Here's what I'm doing next. And we don't really have that in ultra running because you simply just either move to the middle or the back of the pack when your competitive days are done. There's not like anything official about it. Um, and the reason I say that is because I'm very curious to know where Sage Canada is at in his career. Like just six years ago, he was one of the very best mountain ultra trail runners in our sport. I mean, right at the top. And he's had a tough go of it recently. Like he's had medical issues. His house burned down. Um, he's just had bad luck. And I don't know if he's necessarily competitively done, but he did DNF UTMB and hasn't had great races recently, not to his potential. So... Um, the fan to me just wonders like, where is he at? Does he still see at least a couple more years of great potential? Does he see himself getting like a top 10 at UTMB at some point? I'm very, very, very curious about, 
uh, where he's at and what he could possibly do. So he's one. And then this, this next one isn't a DNF and she's really right at the beginning of her career. But I don't think that Hannah Allgood had the result that she wanted at that race. And I'm very curious to see what she does with the rest of her year because she had obviously a great performance at Gorge, a great performance uh, edging out Claire Gallagher at San Juan Solstice. So those are my, my two curiosities for next steps. Yeah, retirement in the sport's weird. I think, I don't know, I kind of see it in a, it, it's in a kind of a good way. It's, I think it's really cool that you don't have to make a formal retirement because ultimately for a lot of these other big team sports, you, you just, your agent tells you to make that call because you're going to get cut and it's way easier for you to dictate that narrative saying I'm retiring when in reality, Mm -hmm. like the GM is about to cut you, even if you've had an amazing career. Whereas like in running, like you still, you get to, usually in most of these cases it boils down to like you just enjoying running and you happen to also be good at racing like you know you kind of just slowly kind of fall back into the middle of the pack and um i think i mean i think there's some 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 beauty in that i mean i guess at some point maybe your sponsor decides that they want you know it's time to part ways maybe it's mutual maybe it's not um Mm. but yeah yeah the, the retirement talk in this sport is interesting there's also like hasn't been that many people who like say are making a living being a professional ultra runner and actually then can retire like you know sage can retire from the sport because he's like getting paid to run ultras whereas like a lot of people it's like in 2005 someone made their retirement speech they'd be like what is this why are you telling (laughs) me this Whereas it can actually be a thing now. So maybe it's just a kind of a new world to be navigating. Typically the unofficial retirement is I'm going to go try to go get like a long trail FKT. Yeah, (laughs) that's, that's the end all be all of the career. Or you could be Carl Meltzer and just start cherry picking some hundred milers around the U S until you're, (laughs) you've worked your way through all of them who I think ran UTMB actually. And was he a DNF? It's actually a good I think question. he might have DNF'd. Yeah, he DNF'd a Cormier, I think. Okay. Mm. Um, hey, are you guys okay to go for like five or ten more minutes? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Brett, Last um, thing I Brett. want to talk about before uh, before we go to like just parting thoughts, mm. there was a really interesting tweet from I think it was the American Trail Running Association uh, yesterday or the day before, just bringing to light the lack of female representation across the UTMB events. So uh, I wrote down these numbers, 9% of starters at UTMB were women, 16% at CCC, 29% at OCC, 11% at TDS. Um, and then weirdly at ETC, 44%. And I, I actually, uh, Corinne Malcolm supplied that stat on Twitter. I, I actually couldn't find it, but um, I think it's, it's, uh, it's good. So, this seems to be in line with a lot of other marquee events. Like I know Leadville has low percentages. Western States does hard rock of course has been in the news for having these. Um, what can we do to, to, to balance the representation there to get it closer to 50, 50? Um, maybe Leah start with you. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I have a lot of feelings on this. Um, one of the things I disagree with is this mindset that just because this is the way it is, means it should be this way. 
um, because I think there's a lot of avenues for improving this statistic. Um, I think a couple of reasons for this statistic is, you know, historically we've seen more men participate in the sport. Um, I think increasing the number and the visibility of women in the sport would definitely increase the numbers here. How do we increase the number of women in the sport? Well, you take High Lonesome, for example. I think they're just this beaming gold standard for what it means to increase the participation of women in the sport. Um, like, do we need 50-50 representation? No, but let's increase the numbers. Like, that'd be amazing to see. I would love to see that. I would love to see 60% women, 40% women. But there's a lot of challenges. Like, women have to deal with motherhood and pregnancy deferrals and things like that. Uh, UTMB could start, which I believe they're making strides towards a pregnancy deferral. And they might have actually put it in place for next year. I still need to do my research. Um, things like that. I think that's a good place to start. And I think it's not going to be until we start seeing more women in these races that, you know, it'll get that ball rolling. Um, and it's an unfortunate, it is such an unfortunate reality. Um, yeah, I, I know there's not many solutions, but I think there's strides we can definitely make in this arena. I would say I agree completely with all that. Um, yeah, like there's just like abysmal numbers and, and it, and it doesn't come just down to the lottery and race day, you know, it's, it's participation as a whole, because, you know, I'm sure if you broke down the lottery percentages, it'd be similar to what ended up being on the mm -hmm. start. And so it's like, the problem is like, there needs to just be more, you know, female representation in the sport of ultra running. And what's gone the way with like sports in the past is a lot of it is, you know, at the very top end in the media side, like there needs to be role models for younger aspiring trail and ultra runners to look up to like if they don't have that person that they see like oh i want to run like courtney i want to run like leah like then then there's not that avenue to continue to be in the sport so you know i think so much of it can come from like yeah like the equal representation on the top end of the sport to create a little bit more just like cast a bigger light over how incredible the runners are at the top. And like, I think there's some trickle down to that, to increasing Absolutely. participation. Yeah. I think um, an argument that we're also seeing right now is like, it's not UTMB's fault. That's the way the entrance numbers are. That's the way the applicants numbers are like, they're just allocating this percentage of people then to get into the lottery. And it's like, well, yeah, but UTMB is also in control of, who they let in and how many people they let in so they could 100% skew it in a more equal way to give women and men uh, equal representation. And I think this is something I just saw on Twitter this week. And I think Finn, you're aware of this too, but just the coverage that Corinne had to fight for uh, mm -hmm. during the live stream of putting the camera on the lead women's field, the third place finishers, the second place finishers, bringing that camera back. And I think the one quote, um, somebody else, I think it was Sarah Bard on Twitter said was at one point, one of the announcers said like, okay, we're going to put the camera back on the women's field. If that's okay. And it's like, of course that's okay. Well, yeah, well, That should be normalized. So just this mindset in general, we just need an entire cultural shift in addition to UTMB mm -hmm. taking strides to make things more equal. It was really interesting. I was, and Lee, I think you were there too, but I was uh, at the finish line for, you know, the UTMB and, or maybe it was TDS or C, it was CCC. It was CCC. I was there that night and the announcers were describing the men's race as this 
you know, they were describing it in terms of like work ethic, like, oh, it's this hard fought finish. They're giving it everything they have. And then for the women's finish, it was like all about emotion. It's like, oh, let's see if they can keep it together as they uh, get to the finish line. And I, I just thought it was very interesting that they were they were describing those two races in two different qualities as if there were like, you know, emotional and physical differences somehow. Wow. Um, so I think that there's room to, to grow there as well. Um, but I like what I like your mention of, of the high lonesome 100 and I was actually just on their site the way I understand it there's two is it there's two separate pools mm -hmm. to ensure that there's as close to 50 percent um, uh, participation as possible from both genders and then if for whatever reason I think you know either gender doesn't have um, 50 percent representation then it goes to like general registration but mm -hmm. I think that that's a pretty cool route one, I just want to list a quote here. So I was scrolling through that Twitter thread and I saw uh, a reply from Bethany Patterson, who I recognize. I think she got a golden ticket at yes. Georgia Death Race. For yeah, she's from Virginia. And she said, quote, for me, it's logistics, family, and job commitments that make it so hard to even qualify, especially starting next year, let alone make it there to compete. I think it's just easier for men to get away than women, especially moms and busy women just my two cents, end quote. And I think that's interesting because, you know, we talk about this new stone system that's getting implemented and there's an even bigger problem or as big of a problem upstream where, uh, yeah, you're going to have to go. I mean, even in the U.S., you can only count a few places that are going to be stones qualifiers and it's going to get tough. So I thought that was a good point as well. Yeah, I think she wraps up a lot of the concerns, especially of moms and moms who work like it's just getting harder and harder when you put in qualification systems like this. So you have to even it out and make it a little easier. Any other thoughts on this before we go to uh, just general final thoughts about the, uh, the week? That was a fun race. <laughs> All those races, they were very fun to watch. I, I want to, I don't know if I want to do them more or want to go there and watch them more. I don't know what i yeah brett, I are you gonna be there next year yes i know i think brett you, brett you need to be there next year instead of watching 15 to 16 hours of the live stream <laughs> yeah i think you're right then i can watch 48 hours of it in real life <laughs> what's more extreme yeah i have one or two that i want to share on my end but any other interesting stories or inspirational stuff you want to share about the week one Finn, you got engaged. I did. Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> That's you. cool. Thank you. Um, and then the other one that I just like usually always ask when someone comes back from a trip is like, what was the best meal that you had when you were out there? <sighs> Leah, you go first. Okay. So, yeah, this is easy. Um, right. So there's a run you can do. It's actually the first climb of CCC. Um, you hit this refugio and then you run all the way to Arnuva. Is that what it's called, Finn? Um, yes. Okay. And there's a little chalet or little refugio down there and they serve polenta. And this is also the spot where you can start your climb up to Grand Colferay. So the one day I ran up to the Grand Colferay and back down and I finished my run with like a nice spritz and then a big bowl of their like world renowned polenta with mushrooms and they're known for their mushrooms there. And it was just absolutely delicious. And nothing's better than finishing a run like directly at a restaurant and like outside mountains towering around you. And I can't decide if it was like the scenery that was better or the food, but yeah, it was incredible. 
Mm. Okay. Mine, what, there's this tiny little focaccia restaurant in Cormier that uh, Leah and I both got to experience thanks to our mutual friend Caleb Olson and Morgan Olson that recommended it. Um, but if you're in Cormier, uh, that's the place to go, I think, for focaccia. Um, so, yeah, that was it for me. Cool. But anyways, I got two things. I got, I got two things that I want to share before we go. First, as it stands today, has Jim Walmsley done enough to be the American male ultra runner of the year again, or does he have to do anything more this year to solidify it? And if so, what does he do? That's the first thing. Mm. And then the second thing, uh, I want to bring up Jasmine Paris again. I don't think she had a great race. I think she DNF'd, but the way she did all this stuff around the race, like she's made this big campaign around just being more environmentally friendly and green. And I think she took a series of buses and trains to get to the race, raising awareness about, the carbon footprint that we create traveling. And I think that's something that deserves to have a larger conversation because I think, you know, obviously we're in this era of, um, you know, climate change, like really significantly seeping into our lives. And I think one of the central questions in our sport moving forward is like, how do we engage in this increasingly global sport where even to be a part of the UTMB world series means significant travel and what's our role and how do we do it? How do we offset things? And, yeah, she has this group called the Green Runners, which I'll, I'll link in the show notes. But I thought that um, her awareness on that front is super cool. And I think our community is already conscious of this kind of stuff. And we're trying to make moves in that direction. But I think it was a good act to make when, um, you know, getting to Cormier takes a lot. Mm-hmm. So those are my two things. Yeah, I guess um, something this I probably just have one thing, but I, two things, I guess that we were talking about Ultra Runner of the Year was... I refreshed my memory the other day and it is North American ultra runner of the year when we're talking about that. So Marianne Hogan has to be up there in the conversations this year, um, given her third place at Western States and her second place at UTMB. Um, Another thing I wanted to comment on was the ability of the women yet again to do a really solid Western States UTMB double. We saw Marianne Hogan, Emily Hoggood, and Aroa. Um, Aroa, I believe, got... I mean, 13th, I believe, at Western States this year, maybe 12th. Um, and then and eighth. Oh, and then she got eighth. I mean, sorry, 12th at Western States, eighth at UTMB. Um, so re- pretty much three women doing a very solid Western States UTMB double. And I don't know if we saw any on the men's side yet again. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Emily Hoggett, two years in a row. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's two, and two very different years of racing for her as well. It wasn't like she just did the same thing again. Like her buildup to Western States this year was completely different. Her race this year at Western States was completely different. And then to come back and still perform well at UTMB, like, yeah, she's pretty incredible. That's yeah. And I think just with respect to other races going on this weekend, we saw like Taylor Nowlin, she got ninth at um, CCC after doing a Western States double. And then we just saw Camille get, sixth place at comrades after running Western States um, and getting top 10 there. So I think we're seeing women bounce back pretty well from uh, Western States and still putting in a solid result later in the summer. Yeah. Awesome. Well, y'all, this has been such an awesome episode. I think we should do some sort of a year in review thing, like in December, I think it'd be fun to, given that we've just been commentating on all these events over the summer and thinking about stuff from the winter and spring, it'd be fun to, we, oh, I like to do this. like a year in review thing. We should just I'm do down. like an ultra runner of the year prediction episode. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. 
Yes. Yeah. Great, great, great idea, Brett. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Dude, story, story of my life. Like, all you got to do is take what one person said and then just say it a little bit louder. Oh, that was perfect. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, uh, until next time, this is the Single Track Podcast. And thank you, Leah Yingling. Thank you, Brett Hornig. We will be back hopefully soon. <laughs>